Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week we finished up our series on uh, lamentations. It was called Collapse. And I thought it was a good time, a good place to uh, jump off of for our next series. Because Lamentations ends with the statement of restore us to yourself unless you've totally forgotten about us. And there's this tension. And it's interesting because this this uh, issue, this destruction of Jerusalem, which is what Lamentations laments the entire book. It's the destruction of, of Jerusalem. Uh, it's the fall of Jerusalem, of the, of the nation Judah, to the Babylonians. And this was foretold a hundred years before it ever happened by the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah, if you look at Isaiah 52, 7... Isaiah has a prophecy. And actually, before you get to 52.7, if you go back to chapter 51 and even chapter 50, it's busy telling you about all the desolation, the horrible things that will happen in Jerusalem as a result of the people's sin, as the result of God's wrath being poured out against Jerusalem. And then there's this picture that Isaiah has in his mind of this watchman who's on the city wall, what's left of it, the remnant of the city wall. And this watchman sees a runner. He sees a messenger who is running to Jerusalem with a message. And then we get this passage. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, that messenger who was running to the city of Jerusalem in Isaiah's vision. And that messenger had good news for this this city that had been burned down, destroyed, the temple looted, all of the prominent buildings burnt to the ground, all of the smart, successful, wealthy, royal, wise people had been taken away into exile in Babylon. And this messenger shows up to that city, to those people who are left, and has good news. How beautiful are the, on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. Who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Now, think about it. You're in your. If we were in the capital city of our country and the White House had been destroyed and burnt to the ground, and the Capitol building had been destroyed and burnt to the ground, and the Supreme Court had been destroyed and burnt to the ground, and all of the, the National Mall, they'd knocked over the Washington Monument, they'd destroyed and defaced the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, all these things had been destroyed, and a runner comes and he says, The U.S. is supreme forever. Would you believe him? Would you think you've got a point there? 
You see, that's the issue going on with this messenger. It looks by all appearances that God is not in control. It looks by all appearances that God is not in charge. It looks like he's not sovereign. But this messenger runs and says, I bring good news. And the good news is that despite appearances, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He will bring salvation. Now, it doesn't happen anytime soon. In fact, the people are in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And then they return. They're allowed to come back and build their temple and build their wall. And even that is not as exciting of a time as when Solomon built the temple because it's not nearly as glorious. The old timers, they're like, I remember how nice Solomon's temple was. And it's nothing compared to this thing, you know. And besides, when we did Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord landed upon, came and dwelt in the temple. And Habakkuk ends with the glory of the Lord not showing up at the temple. And the people build this thing and they muster all their energy and strength and resources to build this thing. And nothing supernatural happens. That's kind of how the Old Testament ends. It's on a downer. But there's expectation. There's anticipation. Because of prophecies like this one in Isaiah, where it says God will bring about salvation. He will bring about peace. So there's hope. There's other prophecies that say God himself will come to his people, to his temple. He will dwell with them. Then the New Testament picks up this word, good news. The word in the New Testament in the Greek is euangelion. We get the word evangelism or evangelism or evangelical kind of comes from this. We also get the word gospel from this word, good news. And this good news that is proclaimed in the New Testament was also an ancient thing that happened whenever a new king ascended the throne, a new king was born, there would be a proclamation of good news throughout the land. And the Gospels link this good news with a new thing with the kingdom of God for the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at the kingdom. We're going to be looking at the kingdom of God and we're going to chase this as threads throughout scripture. Today, we're going to kind of do a tour de force. It's going to be exhausting. You're going to have to pay attention. If you don't want that, get up, leave Bailey, sit down and, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be good. It's going to be, uh, rewarding if you stick around. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out how to take these very abstract ideas, the kingdom of God. Jesus came and he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. He kept saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And we live in a republic. We live in a democratic republic. We don't have a king. In fact, I was listening just this past week to a a podcast. It's called Backstory. It's done by a bunch of nerdy history professors. And there was a big argument in our country about what to name our leader. And there were those 
in the Senate that wanted to name our leader His Majesty or His Royal Highness or the King. They wanted to have a regal title just like all the other nations had for their leaders. And if you think about it, that was the paradigm. That was what they were breaking away. They had kings and queens and royal bloodlines. And there were those in the Senate that wanted that to continue. And then there was the House. And the House was trying to come up with, how do we put Washington in his place? And they came up with the most derogatory, but you're kind of in charge of a meeting name they could think of. President. They came up with the word president. In fact, to this day, the Senate has never signed off on that title for the leader of our country. Now, obviously, that title, president of the United States of America, has become a regal title. It has become a weighty (coughs) title, but it didn't start out that way. And one of the things that I was, that I found interesting was just the development of this title and how we don't have a king, but we have a president. And we got a theme song for the guy, and we got his own jet, and we got a fleet of like bulletproof, bombproof. They're kind of a king, aren't they? Isn't the president kind of kingly? I mean, we may not call him a king, we may not think of him as a king. We might not like him and get rid of him in a few years. We don't have to do an uprising. We don't have to have a call to arms to do that. We can go vote. And some of these concepts that we see in the scriptures, though, of kings and kingdoms, some of them have parallels for us, for us but some of them don't. And so I'm going to try to draw stuff on the board. I probably should have Bailey do that because she's far more talented than me. But we're going to draw a little bit on the board to help us understand what's going on in the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 1, first page of the Bible, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's start there. God created the heavens and God created the earth. And then he said it was good. Awesome. January 1, you read that passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says on the earth that he created a place. It was a special place. It was a garden. It was a garden of, sorry, Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. And we know that the whole earth was not the Garden of Eden, because the text itself tells us that the Garden of Eden was bordered by four rivers. We know a couple of them, the Tigris and the Euphrates. A couple others, they must have dried up and moved away. We don't know what they were. I mean, we we know what they were. We don't know what they are. And so we have the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden, the language that is used for the Garden of Eden from the ancient world is temple language. When you look at what was, what was built later on by Solomon, by all these guys to honor God, it was a temple. And the temple was decorated with palm trees. It was, tec- it was decorated like a, a lush, luxurious garden. Now, why would that be important in the ancient world when you live in the desert? 
Because God, gods don't live in deserts. Gods live in lush gardens. Gardens are places where the gods live. Gods live in paradise. They don't live in a parched, dried out desert wasteland. And so the place that God's dwelling is on earth is the garden, the garden of Eden. Ezekiel picks up this theme and he talks about God's garden also being on a mountain because the ancient people thought of the gods of living on mountains. So like the ancient Greeks, where does Zeus and all his homies hang out? Mount Olympus, right? And the top of Mount Olympus is a lush paradise garden. And, and that made sense to them because none of them went to REI to go get hiking gear. None of them went and recreationally climbed the top of mountains. They were busy trying to survive. Free time was spent making food. Okay? They didn't climb for fun. So nobody knew what was at the top of mountains. They just all assumed it must be a garden because that's where the gods live. Now, in this garden, what does God do? He creates, and I've, I've made my garden too small. He creates male and female. She has a skirt. He creates Adam and Eve. If you look at Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28, it says this. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule, circle, highlight, underline that word, rule, over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Next slide. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Did you hear a word said a couple times in there? Rule. Adam and Eve were created to rule. They were created to rule over the earth. That's why God put them there. Now it's interesting because in the ancient world, kings were thought of as the sons of God. And kings were thought of as the image of God. And so kings, if you remember the story of like Nebuchadnezzar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they got in trouble and thrown into a fiery furnace. This is reaching back into Sunday school for you guys. They got thrown into a fiery furnace. And the reason they got thrown into the fiery furnace is because they refused to bow down to the image that was made in the likeness of the king. That's what kings did in the ancient world. But see, God, who's king of all this, by the way, but we usually think of him as king in heaven, God, the king of heaven, he created us in his image. Weird, huh? So instead of a king making an image of himself, well, I guess that's what God did. A king made an image of himself. God made an image of himself and placed us as a representative ruler on earth. That was our job. 
Verse 28 says that we were supposed to subdue and rule over the earth. We were supposed to multiply. Adam and Eve did a good job of that. We continue to do a good job of that. I see lots of small children here. We take fruitful very seriously. Fruitful and multiply. We're doing a good job of that. And the idea is that we can make other little images of God. Do you ever think about it that way? Your kids are an image of God. The children that you brought into the world are imagers of God. And their job, actually it's, it's not even a job, it's who they are. It's, a, it's, the, it's what they are. What they are is the image of God. No matter how well behaved they are, no matter how smart they are, no matter how athletic they are, no matter how gifted they are, no matter how talented they are, every single child born is the image of God. Because it's not about abilities, it's about what they are, what we are. We are the image of God. And what we were told by God to do is what? Subdue the earth. Multiply and take this place over. And what he meant by that, I think, is take Eden everywhere. Make the whole earth like Eden. The way we see this play out is that they were gardeners. Adam and Eve were gardeners. And they were supposed to make babies and garden. My wife's really excited about the gardening part. (laughs) We're done with the make babies part. You see, they were supposed to take Eden and invade the rest of the earth with Eden. So Yuma County was supposed to become like Eden. Even Yuma was supposed to become like Eden. Now, clearly, we know something went wrong. Right? Just saying. Something went wrong. We'll get to that next week. Now, it's interesting. Because the heavens and the earth, I didn't draw this very well. These can overlap. Okay? Heaven and earth can overlap. And early on, they overlapped in Eden. Heaven and earth overlapped in Eden. That was God's place on earth. That was his dwelling place on earth was Eden. And then 11 chapters of Genesis happened and things got a little derailed. And then we get to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, we read this about a guy named Abram. Go ahead and put Genesis 12 up there for me, Kyle. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Next slide. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So God's plan now is my dwelling place, my people, the folks I'm going to use on earth are the folks that come from Abram, who gets his name changed to Abraham. Man, it's like you guys know this stuff already. So his place started out as Eden, and then eventually we're going to see it becomes Israel. 
And then specifically in Israel, it's going to be the first, the tabernacle, and then it's going to be the temple. Those are the places that God dwells. That's why when Jerusalem fell and the temple was looted and burnt down and broken up and destroyed, it was such a terrible thing because God's presence on earth left. You see, I tend to believe like other Bible Old Testament scholars believe that God's presence actually dwelt. You could have, if you could have, you would have gotten killed. But if you could have walked into the Holy of Holies, you would have seen God's presence in there. And it had been there since Solomon dedicated the temple and did not leave. It did not depart until you get to the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has a vision of God's throne leaving the temple of Jerusalem, of Solomon. God's presence leaves. And so at that point, God's nowhere. God is nowhere on earth. That's kind of a bummer, isn't it? Then we get to the New Testament. Now, it's interesting because in order to chase this down, there's some language that's important for us to to hold on to. In John 3.16, you're going to see this language even in the most famous verse in the Bible. Because this area here goes by many names besides earth. In fact, you'll see one of them in John 3, 16. For God so loved the, one of the words for this space here is world. Okay, the world. Now, when we read that, we think all the people in the world, but that's not, I think, what John's doing. I think John is comparing and contrasting the world, the kingdom of Adam, to the kingdom of God. God so loved this kingdom that he gave a son for this kingdom because he wants to take this kingdom Other words for this are um, the present age. Paul uses the word the present age. Another word for this area is the age. This is a really bummer one. Age of sin and death. I probably should type instead of write. The age of sin and death is another way that this is referred to. This realm, this place here. Words for this place, well, we already have one, heaven. Another word for this that Jesus seemed to like a lot is the kingdom of God. He likes that one a lot. And then another one he uses, and he uses this one in John 3, 16, eternal life. Another word for this realm. Those who are in that realm experience eternal life, experience the kingdom of God, experience heaven. Now, if God rules and reigns this area, who rules and reigns this one? Well, John gives us some hints. Actually, they're way better than hints because he names him. Now, first off, though, one of the things that we know that God wants to do is in Revelations eleven fifteen. What God's goal is and what Revelation eleven fifteen tells us is that The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and the Messiah. That means it's not currently that. Does that make sense? Where you and I live on earth is not currently under God's 
authority. He's not king of this area. It's going to happen. So the guy that's in charge of this, he goes by a couple names. John calls him the ruler of this world. He also calls him the prince in some translations of this world. Later on, he'll come all out and just call him Satan, (laughs) the evil one. And we see this played out in the temptation of Jesus with Satan, where Satan takes Jesus up on a high place and he says, if you will just, if you will just bow down and worship me, I will give all of this to you. I will give the world, the earth, the kingdom of Adam to you. Now, the interesting thing in that exchange is Jesus does not rebuke him by saying, Satan, you can't give it to me. You don't have the power. He never says you don't have the authority. In fact, have you noticed that when you're tempted, it's actually stuff that's tempting? You notice that? My guess is, since we're talking about the temptation of Jesus, this must have actually been tempting to him. Because if it's not tempting to him, it's not a very good temptation. I've never been tempted to take a razor blade and just run it down my face. Not tempted. And now some of you are like, well, I'm just gonna... don't do it. It's a bad idea. See? I've never been tempted to do that. I've never been tempted to eat too much Brussels sprouts. Never been tempted. Broccoli, mm-mm, cauliflower, no way. Never been tempted. Barbecue, boy, that's a problem. <laughs> Hamburgers, yeah, issue. Steak, uh-huh. Brussels sprouts next to the steak. That's just for pictures. That's just for color. <laughs> I don't know what that's for. It is not for consumption. Now, maybe if you deep fry it, maybe it's worth eating then. I don't know. I've never been tempted. I've never gone to a buffet that just has Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and broccoli. Never been to that buffet. That might exist. Not a temptation to me. No big deal. Nordy's in Loveland, that's a temptation. Because they have barbecue there. Buffet style. That's a problem for me. Perhaps you're a Brussels sprout sinner. That's your problem. (laughs) Jesus was probably tempted in some manner when he was made this offer. Wouldn't you think, since it's called the temptation of Christ? It must have been tempting. What is Satan doing? He's trying to say, I know what your goal is. I know what you want. You want this. And I know that I am currently that. I know I'm the ruler of this place. And you want this place. You can have it. Just bow down to me. You see, at that point, I don't even think Satan knew how Jesus was going to go about getting it from him. In fact, Paul later on tells us that had the principalities and powers, had Satan, the ruler of this world, had those folks known what was going to happen on the cross, they never would have killed him. 
I think at this point in the story, Satan just knows this is why you're here. This is what you want. And I'll give it to you if you worship me. Well, if that's what Jesus wants, and Satan's the ruler of it, how did that happen? How did we go from God having a piece of this place in Eden to having Satan large and in charge here? Well, we're going to talk about that in depth next week. One of the things that I want you to see real quick, though, Satan's not the only baddie in the story. Satan's not the only one. Uh, We see this in some uh, obscure, weird passages. Daniel chapter 10, if you jump to Daniel chapter 10 for me, Kyle. Daniel chapter 10, it tells this story where Daniel, the, the guy who's in Babylon, he had been taken there in exile following the destruction of Jerusalem. See how this links up to what we did last week? Daniel is in Babylon. He's reading a letter from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, hey, settle down in Babylon. You're going to be there 70 years. Daniel, being a smart young lad who's no longer young, he's probably in his 80s, realizes it's been about 70 years. He starts to pray. And he starts to pray and fast. And Daniel gets this insight on what happened when he started to pray and fast because he started to pray and fast for three weeks. And there's this supernatural being that shows up in front of Daniel, an angel. And the angel says, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. So when was his words heard? First day, three weeks ago. But the prince of the Persian kingdom kingdom resisted me 21 days that's weird then michael one of the chief princes came to help me because i was detained there with the king of persia now by the way it's not a physical king that's detaining an angel these are this is stripping back for us something that we can't see which you would probably be wise to call the unseen realm You see, one thing that happens in the earth and in heaven is that history is playing out on two different planes, in two different realms. One is the physical scene realm that we all live in and love and enjoy, and barbecue is a part of that, thank God. But then there's this unseen realm. And every once in a while, the Bible pulls back the curtain. Every once in a while. Not nearly as much as any of us would like, Not nearly as just enough to make us go, oh, there's something else going on here. Just enough for us to think maybe that's part of the bigger story. Now, it's not enough to be incredibly satisfying for any of us. But here in this passage, we learn that in the unseen realm, God in heaven heard Daniel's prayer from earth realm. And sent a messenger. The messenger was invading Babylon and got detained by whoever's in charge of Babylon. Hey, this is my airspace. This is my realm. 
Would we just let the Iranian Air Force fly into our country without, you know, detaining them in some way? That's kind of what's going on. In the supernatural realm, there was a prince, there was somebody in charge of Persia in the supernatural unseen realm. This is an invasion. I'm going to stop you. And this guy's such a wimp, he needed help. Just kidding, he could probably take us all. But he needed Michael's help. Michael shows up, helps him out, and now he's able to give his message. Now, another weird thing about this paradigm, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says this. The Apostle Paul says, for our struggle, who's, who, who is he talking to when he says our? Us. Just, you know, you needed my help to see that, right? For our struggle. I mean, don't just write this off as this is weird, ancient people who were not sophisticated moderns. Okay? Paul says, for our struggle. If this is God's word to us, then I'm assuming we're included in the hour. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the, just in case you were thinking, well, yeah, rulers, principalities, powers, like all the bad kings and queens in the world. Just in case you are thinking of the wrong realm, he says, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this is why this kingdom thinking, this stuff, why the next few weeks as we look at this is so vitally important. It's because Paul says you and I are in the thick of this battle. In the vast majority of the time, we don't even think about it. Vast majority of the time, we just go, well, that's weird. Let's go get lunch. Vast majority of the time, we don't even want to go here. But the Bible does. The scriptures do. In fact, remember how we started with hope? The hope of beautiful feet that bring good news. What was the good news? The good news was that the king is coming. The king is coming. You see, the goal of this whole thing, Revelations eleven fifteen, is for all of this to be one. For heaven and earth. And in fact, that's how Revelations 21 and 22 end. With heaven and earth being one. FYI, no human ruler is going to pull this off. No tax program, no tax break program, no safety net. There is nothing that is going to make this happen. The hope of the people who had just finished reading Lamentations 2,000 years ago is the same hope for people who just finished reading Lamentations last week. It's the same hope. The hope is there is a king who's coming and he is going to make the world right. So the next few weeks, we're going to see how he does that. It should be fun. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you didn't just uh, leave us and forsake us and move on and try to something else. But all along, your desire is that we would rule and reign alongside of you. That we, we would be in the process of making this world your home and our home. That we would be able to be used by you to make this your kingdom. And Lord, I pray over the next few weeks we would understand how this plays out even today, that we have an opportunity and a role to play in this. We have a calling on our lives. As Peter puts it, we are a royal priesthood. Help us to understand that we, we get to partner with you in advancing your kingdom in this world. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Holy Spirit, help us understand these things. Help us know these things. Help us know what's true about us, that no matter what, we are imagers of God, called to rule and reign with him here. Help us do it well. Amen.